Oh, the good old days of the West, where it was easy to tell the good guys from the bad guys. Bad guys wore black hats, robbed and killed innocent people, and hated Indians. The good guys wore white hats, brought law and order to the community, and hated Indians. Sounds like it's time for episode 89 of Pop Art, where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, when you side with a man, you stay with him, host Howard Kastner. Today, I'm happy to welcome as my guest, producer and filmmaker Colin Baines, who has chosen as his film, the existential revisionist Western, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. While I have chosen the more postmodern revisionist Western, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Both films, not just about the changing West, but about the change in Western. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Colin, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Sure. I am a UK-based producer. I spent quite a bit of time in America. I lived in both New York and LA. I've been in the industry for a very long time. I started as a journalist originally back in the 70s. I was a sort of film fanatic. Don't tell me why, because it didn't run in my family, but I just was crazy about movies from the time I was a little kid. I managed to get a job as a reporter on Screen International when I was 19, one of the trade papers. That then led to a very happy experience where I met loads of people that I was thrilled to meet like Billy Wilder and people of that ilk. There was a kind of a opportunity always for people that worked in journalism and writing about particular thing to cross over into the other side of the business. People who worked on music papers tended to go into the music industry and certainly the people that worked on film industry papers like Screen tended to transition into the industry. So I moved into project development for the British government for their agency at the time and then had a career that encompassed moving to companies like Columbia Pictures under David Putnam and later on to companies such as Miramax and the Weinstein Co, Graham King's company, GK Films. Under Putnam, in fact, initially, I produced the very first film that I ever did, which was a film that I got Ray Fines out of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And we made a film for television about T. Lawrence's experiences at the Paris Peace Conference in 1918, 1919. And that was my transition into producing. The film was very successful in America. It vanished in England, but it was very successful in America and it launched race career and it launched my career. I won an Emmy for that. And from that point on, I would do a mixture of development work and production work. And since then, I've been very lucky to have worked on a number of really special films, including Gangs of New York, which we'll talk about in relation to both Once Upon a Time in the West and The Wild Bunches. They were both very much the biggest influences on Gangs of New York. I worked with Anthony Minghella on Cold Mountain. I was producer on The Young Victoria with Emily Blunt. Film stars don't die in Liverpool with Barbara Broccoli who makes the Bond films and most recently I produced a film called The Unforgivable with Sandra Bullock which was on Netflix which is now in their all-time top 10 in terms of viewing. Well that's very impressive so I'm very happy to have you as a guest on the show. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is The Wild Bunch. First, some information about the film. The Wild Bunch is an epic revisionist Western released in 1969. It is directed by Sam Peckinpah and written by Peckinpah, Wallen Green, and Roy E. Sickner. It stars William Holden, Ernest Borgnine, Robert Ryan, Edmund O'Brien, Warren Oates, Jamie Sanchez, Ben Johnson, Amelia Fernandez, Strother Martin, L.K. Jones, Albert Decker, and Bo Hopkins. In 1913, Texas, a group of outlaws headed by Pike Bishop tried to rob gold from the railroad, but are thwarted by hired guns headed by Pike's ex-best friend, Deke Thornton. Pike's gang takes off to Mexico, where they plan one last heist so they can retire. They make a deal with Mapache, a Mexican warlord, to rob a train of guns and ammunition in exchange for gold, but they find themselves caught between the untrustworthy Mapache and Deke Thornton, still on their trail. Now, The Wild Bunch is revisionist Western, a subgenre that began somewhere in the 1960s. It's a genre which takes a different look at the myth of the West, trying to bring a more honest portrayal of the time period rather than the more sanitized and mythic version that had been the mainstay of Westerns during the golden age of Hollywood. 
Why do you think revisionist westerns happened and became so popular? I think it was very much the spirit of the time. First of all, there's one single film which changes everything, really, which is Bonnie and Clyde. What happened with Bonnie and Clyde is that Robert Newman and David Benton were young cineasts who absolutely loved Breathless and they loved Goddard. They wrote a version of the Bonnie and Clyde story, but very much in the manner of the way that the French Nouvelle Vague. And in fact, they tried to sell it to um, Truffaut and Goddard. It didn't get anywhere with them. So they came up with the closest equivalent in America, a director that was plowing that furrow, which was Arthur Penn. It's very hard to imagine the impact of Bonnie and Clyde today because it was really out there in terms of its mixture of violence and humour. And of course, the biggest thing of the lot was its graphic violence at the end in the shooting sequence. It was like a bomb exploded. There was a feeling of young people were taking charge. And the other element which is very strong in all of this, is the Vietnam War. People were being killed in horrific numbers, and there was a kind of revolutionary feeling about all of that. The idea of the old-fashioned Western was terribly unappealing to them. Having said that, of course, it had been gradually filtering through. Things had been changing, even from the 50s. The Westerns like Broken Arrow, that even though the Native American characters were generally still played by Mexicans or Spanish actors, or worse, white actors, and even John Ford, his swan song was Comanche Autumn, where he really tried to make amends in some ways for the portrayal that there had been of Native Americans in his earlier films. Somebody like a Peckinpah, particularly with The Wild Bunch, was very interested in reflecting contemporary themes, but doing it through a period setting. Peckinpah, as he said many times, he wanted to show what it was like to be shot, to show the full effects of that. Well, certainly Peckinpah does mention both Vietnam War and Bonnie and Clyde as two of the big influences. There are a couple of other reasons, too. One of the most important, actually, was that the Hayes Code, yes. the code determined what could and could not be included in movies, was dying. And yep. it was being replaced by a rating system. So this allowed filmmakers to be more frank when it came to language, sex, and for Westerns violence. But also in the 40s and 50s, it saw the rise of the psychological Western, which was the prelude to revisionist Western. Their focus was more on character over traditional Western tropes. The morality was still traditional. Most of the time, there were good guys and bad guys, and they were easy to tell apart. With revisionist Westerns, the traditional bad guys become the good guys, or at least the protagonists, and the traditional good guys become the bad guys or antagonists. I think they're very important, like the Anthony Mann Westerns with Jimmy Stewart, where they start to explore much more interesting themes. Remember that Peckinpah's career was up and down and up and down. I mean, he started out in television with The Rifleman, and then his first film with Deadly Companions was not big hit, wasn't widely seen. But the second film was quite a glossy film for MGM, Ride the High Country. That has interesting psychological themes, and it certainly explores something, because for me, what makes a filmmaker great is a unique vision. Peckinpah definitely had a really interesting take on, if you want to call it in Jungian terms, the shadow, this other part of oneself that is an accumulation of, sort of all the baggage and stuff, and it is projected out into the world onto another character. If you look at Ride the High Country, the relationship between Joel McRae and Randolph Scott's characters is very much like this, the person and their shadow. It becomes manifest in Major Dundee, the film he made before The Wild Bunch, which is his first go at a lot of the themes in this. There is a really fascinating relationship in that film between Charlton Heston's character as the Union captain and Richard Harris as the Confederate captain. And they hate each other, but they're two sides of the same man. I think before moving on, I'll throw in one more thing. After World War II, when modernism ended yeah. and existentialism came in, there was a middle-class discontent and existential conflict. This gave rise to psychological Westerns, but it also gave rise to film noir. And yeah. then by the time we get around to revisionist Western, it's come full force. The discontent is really right out there in front. Why did you choose this film? I chose this film because it shifts around in my top five. I think it's the most incredible piece of filmmaking. I must have seen it hundreds of times. Never get bored with seeing it. I think it's a beautiful piece of screen craft. I think it's a beautiful piece of screenwriting craft with fully fleshed out, rounded characters that it has unbelievable set pieces in it. It has a visual quality to it between the production design and the costume 
rooms and the cinematography and it has an incredible vision by a director who I think is one of the great artists of American cinema and I think it works tremendously as a straight down the line piece of commercial entertainment. When did you first see it? As this kid, I was surrounded with film magazines and books and things. I must have seen the pictures and thought that looks pretty amazing. And of course, it was Forbidden Fruit, which for any kid is a big thing to be. I mean, when it was released, I would have been 12 years old. So obviously, couldn't see it on its first run. But I must have seen it at the National Film Theatre. I was just blown away. I thought it was the most incredible piece of filmmaking. And I still think it's the most incredible piece of filmmaking. It really earns every minute of its screen time. Every element of it is so rich and rewarding. I can't remember when I first saw The Wild Bunch because it came out in 1969. I was in junior high and I doubt it even came to my hometown. I probably saw it in college on campus while I was trying to change from going to the movies to experiencing cinema. Yes. Uh, it was not the director's cut, but I loved it. I'd never seen another film like it. And full disclosure, it, along with Stagecoach, Once Upon a Time in the West, High Noon, and Fort Apache, make up my five greatest Westerns list. And it tends to fight Stagecoach for first place. Shifts over time. It's difficult, that, isn't it? And I couldn't argue with a single one of those choices. Ford is such a master. And in a completely different world, in a way. And again, I don't get tired of Stagecoach either. It's a great movie. What are some of your favorite scenes? There's so many, which I absolutely love. Of course, the opening and closing, they're just incredible visions. I love the long march towards the end. I love the whole contemplation of when they're making the decision about what to do at the end of the movie. Again, because the performances are so exceptional and William Holden is so extraordinary in it. And the fact that Peckinpah trusts when actors can simply be thinking something and he allows that to happen in its time. I love the stuff in the Mexican village. The train robbery sequence, which I always remember someone saying most people would make this the climax to a movie. The fact that it happens halfway through the film is even more extraordinary. But just the precision with which he builds those things up at the big set pieces is extraordinary. But the quality of the character work, much cited scene when they're arguing about, should Deke have given his word to the railroad company and uh, William Holden arguing he gave his word he's got to act as a bounty hunter now Ernest Borgnine saying, no, 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 it isn't your word that counts it, who you give it to those moments are so memorable plus I would say of course, if you've never seen the film before, there's a group of soldiers coming into town. The fact that that dates it at a different period, that we're talking about 1914, which is much later for a Western than we would expect to see on screen. I certainly agree with all that. Mine, of course, are the three big set pieces, the opening robbery, the bridge being blown up, which was done in one take, and yeah. sort of had to be done in one take, and then the final showdown. The one I always remember in the opening scene is when they pass the children, torturing the scorpion with the ant. Incredible. When I saw it, I said, well, I think that's going to summarize the movie as a whole. No, it's brilliant, because it really does, because it was the um, actor that played Mapache that told Peckinpah yeah. that story, right? And I mean, it's like it. the seeming innocence of children, but what actually lies under the surface of all of that. Obviously, you're a big fan of Sam Peckinpah, from what I can tell. Yes. I like Peckinpah. I appreciate him as a filmmaker. I do think looking at his overall career, for me personally, he falls a bit short. I believe I've seen all but one of his features, and that's the one that you mentioned, his very first one. The Companions, the first film, it's a bit rough, that one. There are a couple I need to see again, like Major Dundee and Cross of Iron. But for me, he only really made a handful of successful films. Uh, the Wild Bunch being the greatest. There's Ride the High Country, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, and Junior Bonner, maybe Straw Dogs. But sometimes the others were marred for me by terrible casting choices. I find Major Dundee hard to watch because Charlton Heston is in it. He is one of the worst actors ever to become big in Hollywood. He had a lot of power, and that film would never have happened on the scale that it happened. The tragedy, if you want to call it that, of Peckin par is that Major Dundee turned into an absolute sort of disaster and was taken away and recut. It's a very profoundly damaged film, but it has so many interesting things in it. The beginnings of the stock company that he uses later on, like Warren Oates and Strother Martin. The tragedy of Peckinpah, the real tragedy, was the booze to begin with, and then particularly yeah. the cocaine, because he really 
did lose it after Cross of Iron, which I think is the last interesting film. The Austrian weekend is like appalling and Convoy is pretty dreadful. The Getaway is a gun for hire movie and it's a bloody good film still. I suppose I can't get past Ali McGraw, who was one of the worst actresses to ever become big. I find it very entertaining. I think like so many of his, it has a very good supporting cast. Even Sally Struthers is very good. And Convoy, his most successful film. Convoy, he was a gun for hire. The Wild Bunch is the one 100% perfect film. Given what I know now, producing films, if you could make one perfect film in your life, that's a pretty remarkable achievement. I know there are directors out there who've been able to make the system work and they've been able to kind of control what they do. But I think for the kind of the more maverick filmmakers like Peckinpah, he's fighting the system and he's fighting his own demons. I just think when he's on form, and even in those moments where the films are not 100% working, still amazing sequences. There's a lot of stuff I can't deal with in his films. Straw Dogs is an incredible piece of filmmaking, but misogyny and the sexism in it is absolutely horrific, and it's a very difficult film to watch in the current climate. But as a piece of filmmaking, it's incredible. And that's what I say about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is a film that was cut to pieces by MGM. And the closest we'll ever see to his vision is what they call the director's cut, which isn't the director's cut. It was the preview version of the film, which at least has pretty much the complete film that he wanted to do. Peckinpah's career often reminds me of Orson Welles' career because in many ways they have the same trajectory. They were both victims of their own excesses and addictions. They had trouble working with studios and had their movies taken from them at times. Sometimes they were part of the blame for that. Peckinpah, because of his personal demons, his mental health, his anger management problems. I'm not sure I've heard of so many actors threatening physical violence against a director. And the way he treated the crew was crazy and that when he was drinking, that it was kind of, it got dangerous. And certainly when he was coked up. I mean, like the stories from Convoy are absolutely horrific. But I think that what we know with the Wild Bunch is he wanted to make the comeback. Major Dundee had been a terrible disaster. He was out in the cold. He'd done this little TV film, New Mind. That's the gentle pecking part, which a lot of the time people don't know about. You mentioned one of his best films, Junior Bonner. What a gorgeous, sweet, heartfelt movie. He had incredible connections with actors. And when he had the right people, he could really work miracles. And this alcoholism and his personal issues then caused him to bring his films in late and over budget, which is the unforgivable sin in Hollywood. And both Wells and Peckinpah would try to revigorate their career by making more standard movies. Wells with The Stranger and Peckinpah with The Getaway. And now both of them, their films have been reevaluated and what even are called rehabilitated more favorably over time. What he did get is the American mythology. What I love about Peckinpah's work is it's very American and it mines something very deep in an American sensibility. There is an irony here for Peckinpah's films. They're filled with aging gunmen. The changing times with the introduction of automobiles and the yep. machine gun and approaching civilization that doesn't have any need for his antagonist. But at the same time, in real life, the number of Western films being made were becoming fewer and fewer. Yes. One main reason being they went to the encroaching civilization of television. There were so many Western series at this time that one year, maybe more than one year, they had a separate Emmy category for Westerns alone. That's incredible. The other thing I'd like to talk a little bit about, but only because of my experience on this, was the Gangs of New York connection. I worked on that for a long time. I arrived at Miramax and they just acquired the script from Disney, of course, who were never going to make it. I worked quite closely with Dorsese and with several writers, including Steve Zalian and Kenny Lonergan. Of course, Marty's sort of experience had been that he was taken along by Jay Cox to see The Wild Bunch in an early press screening in New York in 1969. And he and Jay Cox, who'd written the original script of Gangs in New York, were completely blown away by the Wild Bunch and didn't even know quite how to react or what to say. And when Scorsese first picked up the Herbert Asbury book, The Gangs of New York, that must have been in 1970, he finally got the money from Alberto Grimaldi to write a script for it after Taxi Driver in 77. He and Jay said, we want the opening of our film to have all the impact and exactly give people the same feeling that we had when we watched The Wild Bunch. But he was also very heavily influenced by Once Upon a Time in the West. When we had the initial screenings of Gangs in New York, people were very surprised 
they were expecting it to look raw and gritty and like real. And in fact, Dante Ferretti had designed this incredible set. It was a quarter of a square mile on the back lot of Cinecitta Studios in Rome, which was much more influenced by Leone's bigger than life, almost operatic style. So he was very, very influenced by both those films. Screenplay is by Wallen Green and Roy Sickner. What do you see as some of the themes of the movie? And what does the screenplay bring to it? Clearly, this is the changing of an era, that time is moving on. Definitely that sense that America is changing, that there is this underlying sense that this country, which was kind of founded on violence, which again was one of the themes we explored in Gangs of New York. And everybody thinks it all happened in the West Coast, and of course it happened on the East Coast as well. But in the Wild Bunch, there's definitely the sense that these people who live and die by the gun are increasingly pushed out of time. And I think that that is explored very movingly in the film, that they are a bunch of ageing men. They know that their time has passed. I think that this very strong theme of trust and loyalty and codes of honour, which was already beginning to go out of fashion, but there's something very strong and almost reassuring in that people can be these extremely violent individuals, but they also have a sense where a code is important, this whole notion of giving your word to somebody and that being an important thing and not something that you just change your mind about a few minutes later. Also, the themes of how people can be really close but driven apart, but then their closeness still prevails. And certainly at the centre of the film is this very powerful relationship between William Holden and Robert Ryan's characters. And they've both been outlaws together and that Ryan was caught and sent to prison. And his way of getting out of that was to be the leader of the posse going after his old colleague. That gives the film an incredible dramatic underpinning to it. Right at the beginning of the film, Ryan has Holden in his sights and deliberately doesn't shoot him. He's troubled throughout by this whole thing that he's been dispatched on his mission to kill someone that still means a lot to him. And of course, thematically, that's very much about the sense of times of past. Ryan is hired by the railroad, which is the representative of the future, as it is very much in Once Upon a Time in the West. It's the new industrial processes that are coming through and sweeping away the old world. So Ryan would rather be out and about doing what he did as an outlaw in the past. And in fact, at the end of the film, when the wild bunch are dead, the bounty hunters ride off and he doesn't go with them. He's asked to go off with the last old boys from the gang to try and do something about the Mexican Revolution. So there's still that sense of freedom and the free spirit that Peckinpah was very taken with. I called it an existential Western. I think also we mentioned that it was highly influenced by Bonnie and Clyde, which was influenced by the French existentialists. And here we have yeah. a group of men who don't know what their meaning in life is anymore. Yep. They know who they are. They accept who they are. They don't apologize who they are. They've made a decision about who they are. But it's an absurd world in which the only certainty yeah. is death. So in existentialism, you have to accept the nihilism, absurdity, and meaninglessness of the world and then choose what meaning you give to it. And here, ultimately, they make the decision that all they have is the idea that when you're in a group, you stand by that group, a decision that both gives their life meaning, but also leads to their death. And the bad guys, who are no more bad than anyone else, are now the protagonists. And the good guys, who are not particularly good, are the antagonists. But what's interesting is there are no Native Americans. They're not major characters in this movie or in Once Upon a Time in the West. So without the outlaws being the bad guys and without Native Americans being the bad guys, who are the bad guys? And in both this film and in Once Upon a Time in the West, it's the railroad baron, or one can define them as either capitalists or as simply the future. It's also about a changing time dramatized by actors who are no longer the young stars they once were during a changing time for movies. So I can see it as a reflection of how their careers are growing. When it came to the violence, Peckinpah said, quote, the point of the film is to take this facade of movie violence and open it up, get people involved in it so that they are starting to go in the Hollywood television predictable reaction syndrome and then twist it so that it's not fun anymore, just a wave of sickness in the gut. It's ugly, brutalizing, and bloody awful. It's not fun in games and cowboys and Indians. It's a terrible, ugly thing, and yet there's a certain response that you get from it and excitement because we're all violent people. Peckinpah wanted catharsis, but as happened so often, he later realized he made a mistake because he noticed that the audience did not revolt from the violence, but actually came to the movie for no other reason than to see it. 
I think that's very accurate because certainly as a kid, I was excited by the violence in the film because it was so extraordinary. And of course, he shot it in this balletic manner. It's very seductive. So yes, the violence is shocking and so on, but it also has a strange kind of beauty. I do think he genuinely believed that there was a cathartic element to it. But at the end of the day, it incites many different emotions within you, which I think is the quality of art. Not telling you to think one way or the other, it's letting you decide for yourself how you feel about it. And then Wallen Green summarized his feelings when he said, quote, I always liked Westerns, but I always felt they were too heroic and too glamorous. I'd read enough to know that Billy the Kid shot people in the back of the head while they were drinking coffee. Yeah, that's true. As you said, summarized so brilliantly early on, you just couldn't tell who were the good guys and the bad guys. There's just a lot of people behaving badly. There are a couple of problematic issues for me, and I felt this when I saw it. The treatment of Angel's ex-fiancee Teresa has a rather misogynistic feel to it. Yeah. When, when he shoots her, all the sympathy is for him and how he feels betrayed. And I'm going, yeah. but she has every right to be with whoever she wants. She's the victim here, Joel, but it's Angel the audience feels for. There's absolutely no question that there's a terrible misogynist streak in, in all of Peck and Pa's work, and that certainly the treatment of the women in the Wild Punch is bad. I mean, it's like even the brutality with which women are grabbed and used as human shields and so on, but certainly the relationship between Angel and his girlfriend is a really problematic one. Now we get to the acting, and do you have a favourite performance? Well, I love Holden. Holden is really amazing in it. I love his battered quality, but I love those great actors. Robert Ryan is the same for me. I love Robert Ryan's acting through through the 40s, he's always been interesting, dangerous presence, but he also has the ability to convey a great deal with very little. And Holden, this was a real revelation, seeing him play this tough, battered character. I love Ernest Borgnine in it. I think he's fabulous. Edmund O'Brien, who I think is fabulous in it as well. Well, I agree with you, but I really do like Edmund O'Brien, who is doing a Walter Houston treasure of the great turn here and the character was inspired by that film he never played characters like this he always played her being sophisticated characters but i agree william holden robert ryan do some of their best work holden had been in a sort of limbo he's getting too old for romantic leads and his alcoholism was getting in the way but yes there's a rawness to both their performances two men who are dying in hollywood playing men who are dying in the west Peckinpah is brilliant at recognising that you could put a camera on a great actor and you didn't need pages and pages of dialogue. You literally could convey things with great subtlety. Also, of course, I love Warren Oates. Peckinpah obviously loved him. And there's a quality of wryness in what he does that, again, I think he's one of the great American actors who conveys massive amounts without having to say a great deal. It should be noted that according to L.Q. Jones, and this has been supported by Strother Martin, that they approached director Sam Peckinpah with an idea to add more depth to their characters. They played T.C. and Coffer. And the idea would be to give a hint of a homosexual relationship between their characters. And Peckinpah liked the idea. And the footage made it into the final release version. It's very small. I never read it as a gay relationship. I just read it as almost like children, that they were really sweet with each other. And there was something so touching about these awful killers, but having the sweetness underlying it. The main scene where it happens is when I think it's Strother Martin or CLQ Jones says, you shouldn't talk to me that way. And Strother Martin suddenly starts apologizing. That was their idea. I don't think you can talk about the cinematography without talking about the editing, because in this film, they just go so hand in hand. Lucian Ballard was the cinematographer. Louis Lombardo was the editor. That almost is nine-tenths of the movie. I think it's absolutely extraordinary. And Lombardo, he and Peckinpah were really pushing the limits of what was possible. I mean, there are incredibly brief cuts in this film, and they wanted to see how far they could go. I cannot think of the film in separation from his cinematographer and his editor. It's so interlinked. It's groundbreaking work for American cinema. Historian Stephen Prince wrote that Lou Lombardo's seminal contribution to the history of editing is his work on The Wild Bunch. The complex montages of violence that Lombardo created for that film influenced generations of filmmakers and established the modern cinematic textbook for editing violent gun battles. That's very true. For the editing, the shots were taken from a myriad of angles and then edited together in quick succession, sometimes at various speed. And this put more emphasis on the chaotic nature of the gunfights and other action scenes. 
They also, of note, Peggy Paul and Ballard used the anamorphic process. So this allowed through the use of telephoto lenses for people in the foreground to be as sharply in focus as those in the background. And this is especially seen in the in confrontation as the wild bunch make their way to confront Mapache over Angel. Ballard never really rose to the top of cinematographers, though he worked on films from the 1930s. He did a large number of B films, and his A films are not as well known or watched today. I think he's mainly on this film because he did Noon Wine. Yeah, I'm sure they had a relationship. It's magnificently photographed. It's very unflashy and it serves the subject brilliantly. Now that I produce things, it's all about an end result. You can have the, the greatest cinematographer in the world, but if what they're doing is really calling attention to itself and repeating a certain kind of style, I'm not sure that that necessarily serves the film to the best of its purposes. On any movie, it's the combination of elements that somehow creates a whole that's bigger than all the individual elements. However many other westerns and so on I've seen, I feel like the costumes in The Wild Bunch are so brilliant. You really feel that they're real and authentic and people are wearing things that look and feel completely right. But again, none of that should draw attention to itself. And it should be noted that Lou Lombardo is one of the better respected film editors. He worked with Peck and Paul on other films as well as a number of Robert Altman films. And The Wild Bunch was his first feature. The music, are you a fan of Jerry Fielding? Fielding, well, I love Jerry Fielding. Um, the score is one of my favourite film scores. I remember back in the day when Ted Hope, the producer, and I have had an extended whinge about this at one time, which is it's fabulous that we live in a world where you can go on YouTube and pick up something straight away or watch a film or hear something. But somehow, when we were young movie buffs, things like the score, I remember having to really search. I live in Soho in London now, and there was a shop around the corner called something like 52 Dean Street Records, and it specialised in soundtracks. And I remember the overwhelming excitement of finding an LP of the Wild Bunch score, which, of course, was long out of print. I think Jerry Fielding's music is magnificent. I think he wrote magnificent stuff for Peckinpah. The Straw Dogs soundtrack is magnificent as well. And I love the way that it integrates Mexican music as well, the ballad that's used, which is, I think, a 19th century ballad. But the biggest thing is he creates a lot of tension. It's a lot of almost romantic elements to it. Peckinpah, being a great director, knows exactly when you need to use music and when you can take it out. Most films today would score the opening and closing battles with tons of music, and Peckinpah dispenses with it. He knows that you can live with just the sound effects that are going on at that time, and then bring the music in right at the end of both sequences. And the ending music there is exquisite. Jerry Fielding did a number of Clint Eastwood films, yep. as well as Advice and Consent, which has a wonderful jazz score. And he's known for using jazz techniques, as well as using scores with darker tones. I really like his work, even in really not good films, like he did the score for the Michael Winner film, The Nightcomers, and it's a great score, and it elevates the film. So the U.S. reviews were mixed, mainly because of the violence. Yeah. Myth of Canby began his review by calling the film very beautiful and the first truly interesting American-made Western in years. It's also so full of violence, of an intensity that can hardly be supported by the story, that it's going to prompt a lot of people who do not know the real effect of movie violence, as I do not, to write automatic condemnations of it. Time, like Camby, liked Holden's performance, describing it as his best in Stalag 17, and said Robert Ryan gave the screen performance of his career, and concluded that The Wild Bench contains faults and mistakes, such as flashbacks introduced with surprising clumsiness, but its accomplishments are more than sufficient to confirm that Peck and Paul, along with Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Penn, belongs with the best of the newer generation of American filmmakers. In a 2002 retrospective, Roger Ebert, who saw the original version of the world premiere in 1969 during the golden age of the junket, when Warner Brothers screened five of its new films in the Bahamas for 450 critics and reporters, said that back then he had publicly declared the film a masterpiece during the junket's press conference, prompted by comments from a reporter from the Reader's Digest who got up to ask, why was this film ever made? I can only imagine what it must have been like. It must have been genuinely shocking and overwhelming. When I watch that film, I feel every emotion imaginable. I feel excited, I feel horrified, I feel I laugh, I cried, and this film is emotion. Meanwhile, John Wayne complained that the film destroyed the myth of the Old West. <laughs> so, mission accomplished, I guess. <laughs> Definitely. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $6 million to make and made $11 million at the box office. Not a huge hit, but not a flop either, and it did much better in Europe. 
They received two yeah. Oscar nominations. Green, Peck and Paul, and Signer were nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and Fielding was nominated for Best Original Score. Peck and Paul was nominated for Outstanding Directorial Achievement by the Directors Guild of America, and Lucien Ballard won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Cinematography. This was the year of Midnight Cowboy and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, two very different kinds of Westerns. In 1999, the Library of Congress selected the Wild Bunch for preservation in the United States National Film Registry as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Pick and Ball considered many actors for the Pike Bishop role. Lee Marvin pulled out after he was offered more money to store in Painter Wagon, and I bet that was a decision he regretted for the rest of his life. Robert Ryan's constant complaints about not receiving top billing annoyed director Sam Peckinpah so much. In the opening credit, after freezing the screen on close-ups of William Holden and Ernest Borgnine's faces while listing them, Peckinpah froze the scene on several horses' rear ends as Ryan was listed. During the opening robbery sequence, two children are seen holding each other and watching as one of the robbers ride by on horseback and scoops up a bag of money lying on the ground. The boy in that scene is Matthew Peckinpah. Amelia Fernandez, who plays Mapachi, was a follower of a subsequent Mexican revolutionary, Adolfo de la Huerta. Fernandez had to leave Mexico and went to L.A. where he got into the film industry. After he returned to Mexico, he became an actor and director and gained a reputation as one of the greatest filmmakers in the history of Mexican cinema. There is also the rumor, which has not been confirmed, that he is the model for the Oscar statuette. <laughs> yes, I've, <laughs> that I've heard, and who knows? Who knows? It was the feature film debut of Bo Hopkins. But with that, let's get to my selection, and that is Once Upon a Time in the West, or perhaps closer translation, Once Upon a Time, There Was the West. For yeah. some information about the film, Once Upon a Time in the West is an epic spaghetti Western film released in 1968. It is directed by Sergio Leone and written by Leone and Sergio Donati, based on a story by, I love this, Dario Chanto and Bertolucci. Was- no, incredible. I'm a huge Argento fan, and yeah. I was overwhelmed with excitement when I was working with his daughter on a film, and he came and visited the set. But it's one of those great, weird things, that combination of Bertolucci, the Marxist, and Argento, the Jallo master. Of course, this was before Gianto and, and Bertolucci was Bertolucci, but yeah. still, like to have been in that writer's room. It stars Claudia Cardinale. I always think it's interesting. She got top billing. Yeah. Uh, Henry Fonda, Jason Robards, Charles Bronson, Gabriel Frasetti, Keenan Wynn, Frank Wolf, Lionel Stander, Woody Strode, Jack Elam, and Al Mollock. It's not stated when the story takes place, but based upon the women's fashions, probably at least 50 years or more before the Wild Bunch. The story follows two through lines, one about a railroad baron trying to obtain land owned by the McBains. When his hired guns murder that family, McBain's widow arrives, determined to keep the land. The other through line revolves around the gunman seeking revenge on an outlaw. The two through lines combine as the story approaches its climax. So before beginning the film proper, I thought we might talk some about spaghetti westerns. Are you a fan, and what do you think about this subgenre? I'm a real fan. I mean, I sort of grew up with that. And again, as a kid, it was all forbidden fruit because we knew that these films were terribly violent. I wasn't old enough to go and see them when they first appeared. I mean, as I grew older and saw them, you can't not be impressed by Leone's sheer bloody cheek, the way he basically ripped off Yojimbo, which of course in itself, as we know, is a ripoff of Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett. I always thought that was funny when they were threatening to sue for the ripoff, and I'm going, well, Hammett could sue you for the ripoff, so. Exactly. But I think what he did was brilliant, the way that he reinvented the staples of the genre, and then took Yojimbo, which takes from Red Harvest, which is a very dark, noirish story, and again, feeds into that thing of who are the villains and who are the heroes, in this case, that you really can't tell very much difference between either of them. There's the combination of that and the visual style, and, and of course, the Morricone music, because you can't have one without the other. But as I grew up and starting to get more and more into adult cinema, then those films were really important to me. I I love certainly Once Upon a Time in the West is the quintessence of that for me. And I think is really an incredible achievement. I'm not a big fan of spaghetti westerns. I'm a big fan of Leone. But this may be because westerns are not my favorite genre. My favorite genre is crime and film noir, etc. So I tend to find Gallo films to be more fun. And I'm a huge fan of Argento. 
I get that. I'm really thinking mostly of the Leone films, but there are Corbucci and there's some other people that I think are not uninteresting. But I don't disagree with you. Well, there are two things I've noticed about spaghetti westerns. One is that they tend to be somewhat postmodern, and we'll talk about that more later, and that they are not comments on the West, but comments on Western movies. Yeah. And the second is that they tend to be intensely anti-capitalist. Yes. They also do what Gaio and many Italian films do. They find some American or British actor or two to be in them no matter how popular or over the hill they are. But there had been Italian and European Westerns since the silent days, but not like in the U.S., and they didn't get the name or importance until Leone came along with the Fistful of Dollars. Yeah. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? I think it's very interesting. Obviously, Leone had Hollywood money. He had money from Paramount, so he was able to do something on a much bigger scale. So it floats somewhere between European and American cinema in a much more obviously European manner. And I think that even that unified theme of the railroad coming through being the fundamental metaphor that hangs over both films is very interesting but they obviously approach things in a very different manner because obviously Peckinpah is working within an American narrative tradition and as you say so precisely that Leone is working in a postmodern European way and as you said absolutely correctly, Peckinpah's film absorbs what we know from Western into a narrative that anyone can identify with, whereas the Leone film is very consciously taking images we know from Westerns. The good guy wears white, quote unquote good guy. The bad guy wears black. A lot of images that we know from Westerns we've seen many times are shaken up in the blender and come out in this way where there's a most pop art quality to it as well. So it's a much more self conscious experience. I know I first saw it in college. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to see it when it came out. Again, I would have been too young. I know that I saw it in college because before I saw it, a friend of mine was raving about it. And he described this scene in the beginning when the camera focuses on Jack Elam and a fly. Yes, right. It goes on for a long time. But he just thought it was amazing that it was fascinating in spite of the fact that it went on for a long time. And I agree. I just said, how do you make this fly buzzing around and this close-up of a person's face fascinating? But he did. I don't think it could have been my first Leone film. That was probably the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I was fascinated by it. It's deliberate in pace, a somewhat convoluted story. I think I could tell people the story of The Wild Bunch, but I know I would always have trouble telling people the story of Once Upon a Time in the West. It's certainly in the detail, it's complicated. In fact, in some ways, it's the essence of simplicity in that it's simply about the railroads coming through town. A man has bought this piece of land. He knows the railway has to stop there. And that people are out to get it, that they want to take that. And then his widow turns up and that she's threatened by various people and protected by one guy who's come back to get very specific revenge on the guy that killed his brother. That, in essence, is the story. But the brilliance for me is the fragmented way in which it's told and how the pieces don't necessarily seem to be connected. And then bit by bit by bit, you realise that the whole movie is interconnected. And I think that that's a masterpiece of storytelling, helped by the vividness of the characters and this extraordinary range of people in the film. Of course, he wanted Eastwood and he passed on it and he ended up with Charles Bronson, which gives the film a very different flavour to it would have had with Eastwood. And then you've got this extraordinary Morricone music that gives really memorable themes to each character. One of the delights of it is that over 160 minutes or whatever it is, I can't remember what the final uncut running time is because I know that when I first saw it, the Jason Robards plot line was pretty much excised from the film. So obviously it's been restored in recent years to its absolute full length. But it's an extraordinary achievement to be able to hold you for that time and to take those things you talk about, the fly buzzing and so on. He starts playing around with ideas like that in the earlier Westerns that he did. And he's kind of like increasingly confident about how much time he can put into some of these more eccentric moments. What are some of your favourite scenes? God, again, like the Wild Bunch, the opening with Jump Bronson arriving at the station and the closing with the incredible shootout between Bronson and Fonda is absolutely incredible. But Henry Fonda shooting the family and stepping out of the bushes and the famous moment that everyone knows where he wanted the audience to think, Jesus Christ, that's Henry Fonda, as the camera pans around to reveal his face. 
Well, some of my favorite scenes are like the opening set piece of Harmonica getting down to three people waiting yeah. to meet him, a reverse of High Noon. Yeah. But there's this interesting scene between Cheyenne and Jilly, Jason Robards and Claudia Cardinelli, where they're trying to figure out why her husband was killed and what was so important about the land. And yeah. while they talk, there's this miniature train engine yes. between them all the time. It was almost like... Leonie's telling you what it's about. Can you get yeah. it? But also at the end, when Frank goes after Harmonica and he steps outside, and not only does he notice that the whole town is taking off or going inside, he noticed that there's something wrong. And we don't have to be told that. We can just tell by the way he's walking around and looking that his men don't seem to be there or they're not where he's expecting them to be. I always thought that was marvelous to be able to do a negative and give a positive plot point. That's very hard to do. Very hard to do. The other thing which he only does brilliantly in the film, and he also does this in Fistful of Dynamite, Duck You Sucker, Mind Your Head, whatever you want to call that film, which is the incremental flashback where you see something at the beginning of the film, then you see something halfway through the film, and then you get the resolution of it at the end of the film. And I love that technique when it's done well, and Leone does it masterfully in Once Upon a Time in the West. I think I can tell that you are a big fan of Sergio Leone, as I am. I think you've stated a lot of the reasons why you like him, but why are you such a big fan? I think it is that thing that he's someone who celebrates cinema without it being a pretentious thing for me. I saw a film last night, which I won't say what it was, so it hasn't been released yet, but which is made by a young director who obviously thinks that he is a master of cinema. And it's a big, flashy, noisy, empty film. It's so self-aware. And the thing about Leone's work is it's got its self-aware, but he never stops involving you in the story and the characters. So you feel like you're having this extraordinary experience where you're in some way you're just able to enjoy it as pure art. The comedy is always very black, very brutal generally, but there's a dark European comedic sensibility. And again, always beautifully shot and beautifully cut. I love his weight of shots. I love the fact that he will give time to individual elements and so on. And of course, the relationship with Morricone is fundamental. You can't imagine his films without the Morricone music. That elevates it again. The sheer operatic intensity of the final shootout between Bronson and Fonda, the revelation of what the storyline is between them, and the way that he just builds this tiny moment. If you ran it in real time, it would be over in seconds. But of course, he builds it up with this operatic feeling where suddenly you're looking at something which is massive. Many people have said this is pure cinema. The final shootout, the way that it's staged, the way that you experience it emotionally, visually, in every way, it is an art form that can't be replicated in the other way. You can't watch Once Upon a Time in the West on a small screen. You know, if you watch it on television, you're not watching it. There is a transcendent nature to that. I'm also very much of a fan. I've actually seen all of his features, including his first, The Colossus of Rhodes. So right. I don't remember anything about it. I have seen Once Upon a Time in America, but I saw the cut version and it didn't really impress me all that much. But apparently that's because I saw the cut version. I have to say, Howard, that I am the world's greatest Leone fan. Sorry, at Cannes, Cannes Film Festival, and I'm not sure which version was screened. I had a tremendous problems with Once Upon a Time in America because of the misogyny in it again. I remember during the rape scene, which is kind of presented in a very odd way. I'm not sure what you're supposed to be thinking or feeling. I was sitting next to the director, Neil Jordan, and we were almost unable to watch it and wanted to leave the cinema. We were both so upset and found it sort of offensive. And I thought there was a casual sexism through the whole film. Well, now I don't feel so bad. Uh, <laughs> and of course, Fistful of Dynamite, he took over. Someone else was going to do it and it wasn't working out. He was producing it. And so he took over the film. But considering it's a film that isn't something he sort of developed from scratch for himself, it's an incredibly Leone-esque experience. And I think that has the greatest score. I love Once Upon a Time in the West score, but my favourite Leone Morricone score of all time is Fistful of Dynamite, Duck You Sucker. Of course, there is a reason why I've seen most of Peck and Paul's films and all of Sir Leone's, they both died relatively young. Peck and Paul at 59 and Leone at 60. Blimey, I'm quite stunned by that. I hadn't realised Leone was as young as that. Yes, it was really, a, I think, a shock. You know, I'm just about to get into this. I'm working on a film which is going to be shot in Rome next year. It's being developed out of the States. 
but it's set in 1943, it's set in Rome, and we are working with Sergio Leone's family as the Italian co-producers on it. So I'm, I haven't met the family yet properly, but I'm getting quite a kick and charge out of the fact that I'll be working with the children of Leone. That's an exciting concept to me. Yeah, that would just be incredible. I know I looked it up. I think he died of natural causes. I think it was a heart attack or something like that. He was a big man and he, like me, he smoked cigars. He obviously was very intense in his work. You can't produce what he produced without putting an incredible amount of yourself into it. But it is very, very interesting that you can have something as heightened as Once Upon a Time in the West and yet on another level because it deals with very basic themes of good and evil, darkness and light, capitalism versus a more sort of socialistic kind of story. And within a system where Paramount Pictures put up a substantial amount of money to get the film made. He's an incredible visual stylist, of course. The close-ups of faces and especially eyes, that one especially of Henry Fonda that I can't get out of my mind. And he has these long takes. The pacing, which is slow if you don't like it, and leisurely if you do, and I do, is in many ways anti-intuitive. It's fascinating because it's so slow. They're opposite ends of the spectrum. What Peckinpah was pushing to do in The Wild Bunch with those rapid cuts and so on. And it's a very visceral film, Wild Bunch. The story propelled from one event to another. There's only the moment where they go to the Mexican village and they chill out. That's probably one of the few moments where it slows down its pace. Whereas clearly the whole thing with Once Upon a Time in the West, it's a very specific leisurely pace. And he lets you know that from that opening sequence, which of course is helped by the fact that the credits are going on while all that very slow stuff with Jackie and the fly and so on is happening. So you're getting information on screen, but he's also telling you, you better like the way this is shot, because if you don't, you might as well leave now, because it's not going to change. After he made The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, Leone only wanted to do the film Once Upon a Time in America, but getting no joy for that, and when Paramount offered him a big budget and his favorite actor, Henry Fonda, he went for it. While the dollar films tended to be a bit more tongue-in-cheek and even somewhat parodies of westerns, this one is much more serious and even slower in pacing. It feels slower than The Wild Bunch, though they're both about the same length. Oh yeah, the style is so different. I think it's like 163 minutes. Wild Bunch in its uncut version is about 145. It is a longer film than that. And I must say, when I first saw the longest version they could come up with, I was aware that at times that the length is there. There's always an issue, slight issue for me with the dubbing. General, of course, he had in Once Upon a Time in the West more American actors, but there's clearly Italian actors who are dubbed, not necessarily in the most brilliant way. That always takes one slightly out of a film when, when that happens. Still, even if there are moments when I lose focus a little bit on it because of the length, it pulls you back in as a whole. Sound in Italian films has always been a big problem because they dub everything. As you probably know, Howard, they don't record sync sound. When my friend Michael Radford was making Il Postino, which was like a French-Italian, possibly German co-production, they had a multi-language cast and crew all speaking their own languages. He said to me, it was like directing underwater. That's why Fellini would choose incredible faces rather than actors necessarily, because he knew he was going to voice them afterwards. Here, what helps, as you said, is most of the actors did their own dubbing. Yes. So that always makes it easier. Claudia Cardinelli didn't do her own dubbing. That obviously isn't her voice. Sometimes they get a better voice for the actor, like I like Burt Lancaster's dubbing voice better than I like Burt Lancaster's voice. <laughs> then Betty Davis does one, and it's so far from Betty Davis's own voice that it's very distracting. They would just sometimes tell actors, just say one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. I always find the only thing that's off-putting about the opening sequence with the Irish family that looks like a bunch of Italian actors with gingers. <laughs> Now that I know a little bit about making films, Once Upon a Time is full of extraordinary camera moves, extraordinary setups, extraordinary blocking and staging of action. That closing sequence where the railway is actually arriving, that you rise up above it as she's bringing out with water for the kind of workers, another 
rather unpleasantly misogynistic aspect of the film, but it's still an incredible shot. There's also a difference in the approach to violence. Peckinpah was more interested in the violence itself, but Leone was more interested in what led up to the sudden violence than the violence itself. And if I remember this right, because this is something Clint Eastwood said, Leone also had a very influential change. Clint Eastwood said that before Leone, the U.S. censors wouldn't allow the audience to see someone shoot a gun and see someone get shot in the same scene. They had to cut it such that it happened in separate scenes. But Leone would show the person shooting and then show the person getting shot at the same time. That's very interesting. I was just thinking what you were saying about that. I think that you're absolutely right about that. But of course, Leone also takes that from Kurosawa because that's such a big thing in Seven Samurai and Yojimbo. Normally, what you think of in those fight scenes or Throne of Blood, the violence itself tends to be very abrupt. It's exactly what Leone, I suspect, saw and learned and took, which is that sense of the lead into it is what makes those things so powerful in Once Upon a Time in the West. The guy's getting shot at the beginning. That's over in seconds, but the lead in is huge. And obviously the Morricone music plays into the tension of that. And it's certainly the case with the end of the film. And then we have the screenplay, and we've already commented about the whole idea of Argento and Bertolucci and Leone actually working together to come up with the story. I just think it's mind-boggling, but you can't argue with success. No, absolutely right. And you can sense that this is Bertolucci at his most Marxist phase. And I guess that you could say that Argento's incredible visual style, which, yeah, this is the time when Bertolucci worked with Pasolini, and a fascinating trio of people. Just while the wall bench is more existential, Once Upon a Time is, is more postmodern. One of the areas where this is most prominent is that Peck and Paul's film is a commentary on the West, while Leone's film is a comment on Western films. This can be seen by how the script was written. When Leone hired Bertolucci and Argento, instead of studying the West, the writers instead spent most of their research time watching much of the classic Westerns, such as High Noon, The Iron Horse, Comancheros, The Searcher. The plot is almost made up entirely of references to American Westerns, and the title does start off with Once Upon a Time, the beginning of a fairy tale. This continues with the casting of Henry Fonda, who normally portrays good guys in film. Exactly. So that he was playing around with audiences' expectations of that. That was definitely... The film critic and historian Christopher Frayling said the film quotes as many as 30 classic westerns. It does have some of the familiar tropes of westerns. Harmonica wears white, though his hat is more gray, and Frank the villain wears black. The story is about an outsider coming in and saving the day, but he's also helping establish civilization in the West. This was often an irony in American westerns. The West needed the brutality of these lawmen and good guys to help establish civilization, but since they are not civilized themselves, at the end, they have to be removed by either leaving or dying. Sergio Donati, who was brought in because Sergio wanted to make sure that his film wasn't going overtime. Donati said, what is film? In the first act, you hang men up in a tree. In the second act, you throw stones at him. In the third act, he falls down. If he is alive, it is a comedy. If he is dead, it is a drama. I love that. It's brilliant. Do you have a favorite actor? I love Jason Robards. Or I just love Henry Fonda being the bad guy because it's so fabulous seeing him play that role. I agree about Jason Robards. And I always love Lionel Stander making his comeback after being blacklisted. Ford has perhaps only played a role like this once before in John Ford's Ford Apache, where he plays a Custer-like figure assigned to the West after the Civil War. He consists a demotion and believes the only way he can get back to Washington is to kill as many Indians as he can. So he provokes a conflict with a local tribe of Native Americans. Well, there's definitely the sense that Leone is playing, having Woody Strode and Jack Elam at the beginning and killing them off is making quite a big statement about where you are in Western history. So I love that. And later, when Fonda was asked why he didn't play more roles like Frank, he said it was because no one ever asked him to. Yes. The cinematography is by Tonino Delacoli, who's one of the great cinematographers. He worked with Leone, Pasolini, Polanski, Bert Miller, Louis Mal, Frederick Lini. We covered one of his films with filmmaker Tony Klinger, where we talked Monty Python's Life of Brian and Pasolini's The Gospel According to Matthew. Brilliant cinematographer. Clearly he and Leone had a great thing going on and that Leone has such a specific visual style. But the lighting in the film, I think, is fabulous. And then, of course, you mentioned how much you love Ennio Morricone. And yes, 
and he is one of the top composers of all times. As I say, you cannot imagine Leone's work without it. I mean, they knew each other as kids, I believe. And then it was when he, he had a hit single, which is basically the became the Fistful of Dollars theme that uh, he came back to kind of Leone's attention again. The integration of the music with the body of the film is just impossible to imagine one without the other. The cut version did badly in the U.S., the uncut version did incredibly well in England. Roger Ebert only gave it two and a half stars out of four. But in subsequent years, the film developed a greater standing among critics as well as cult following. Directors such as Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Quentin Tarantino and Vince Gilligan have cited the film as an influence on their work. It's a massive influence. And yet again, that was absolutely what Scorsese and I talked a lot about. The Wild Bunch and we talked a lot about Once Upon a Time in the West with gangs in New York and that it was definitely a big influence on the visual style of gangs in New York. Wanted a much more stylized look to it. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. In the United States, it grossed $5,300,000. Leone liked to tell the story of a cinema in Paris where the film ran uninterrupted for two years. When he visited this theater, he was surrounded by fans who wanted his autograph, as well as the projectionist who was less than enthusiastic. Leone claimed the projectionist told him, I kill you, the same movie over and over again for two years, and it's so slow. In 2009, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, as did The Wild Bunch. Claudia Cardinelli was dubbed by actor Joyce Gordon, who was also the voice of the recorded message callers here when dialing an incorrect phone number. The movie, the movie was so successful in France, it sparked a brief fashion trend for duster coats which took such proportions that Parisian department stores had to affix signs on escalators, warning patrons to keep their maxis, as they were called, clear from the edges of movie steps to prevent jamming. So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to come up with a couple of films to recommend to go with your selection. If people haven't seen Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, it is worth seeking out to look at the preview version that's on the DVD. But the other one, I was torn between Ozana's Raid, which I talked about earlier, which I think is a very interesting film of its time. Flawed, but very tough, muscular film by Robert Aldrich. And the other film, which I haven't seen since I saw it in Cannes in about 1980, but which I liked very much at the time was The Long Riders. I like Walter Hill, not universally, but when Walter Hill is good, I think he's a very good director. Good version of the James Younger gang story. See, it's got a gimmick in it, which is its real life brothers play the real life brothers in the film. Mine are The Oxbow Incident, Fort Apache, High Noon, and The Gunfighter. But also, I'm adding Monty Python Season 3, Episode 7, Salad Days. <laughs> of course, with a pecking which I know very well. What is next? What should we be expecting from you? I've got a lot of projects in development at the moment, and I don't know which one is going to move forward faster than another. So... I very much hope that there's a twisty, turny thriller set in 50s on the Amalfi Coast, which I'm really hopeful about doing next year. And I'm also hopeful about this film, which I'm doing with the Leone family as Italian co-producers, which is true life story set in Rome in 1943. There's also a film that Lionsgate are making with Amy Sherman Palladino writing and directing, which I've been trying to make for a very long time, called The Fabulous Palm Springs Follies, which is based on the show that ran for 23 years in Palm Springs, where the average age of the cast was kind of 70. It's essentially about old people behaving badly, and it's really funny. Finally, I want to thank you, Colin, for being a guest on my show. It's been an absolute pleasure, and you've made me think about both films again in interesting ways, and I just might have to force myself to watch them again. Mm-hmm.